0: There's an old Chinese proverb that says, quote, A single tree does not make a forest. A single string cannot make music. End quote. The essence of the proverb is that great things can't be done alone. No matter how tall and mighty the tree is, it is trumped by the awe and power of a collection of trees. No matter how beautiful and harmonious one string is, the collection of strings makes a much more powerful impact on the listeners. Throughout time, it has been proven over and over that no matter how extraordinary a human being is, their greatest accomplishments weren't done by themselves. There's a great quote from John Maxwell. Quote, Leaders become great, not because of their power, but because of their ability to empower others. That quote is the essence of today's podcast. No leader has ever done great things all alone, and Octavian was no different. Episode 2, Becoming Augustus when when last left Octavian, he had just won the Battle of Philippi and avenged Julius Caesar's death by defeating Brutus and Cassius. After the battle, Antony's popularity soared. Since Octavian had been ill during most of the fighting, he was not seen as the guy who brought justice to Julius Caesar. With the battle over, the Triumvirs set out to govern their parts of the Republic. With this popularity, Antony would go to the eastern part of the Republic to prepare for a conquest against the Parthians. Octavian would get the west part of the empire, and Lepidus, since he didn't contribute much to the Battle of Philippi, only received Africa. Octavian was now the number two guy. However, the harmony between the triumvirs would not last long. Fulvia and Lucius, Antony's wife and brother, started stirring up trouble against Octavian, the conflict would eventually bubble into what seemed like would be another costly civil war. But Octavian and Antony overcame their differences and renewed the triumvirate. The Roman people let out a cautious sigh, for it seemed they had avoided another deadly civil war. But before they could even finish sighing, famine struck. For Sextus Pompey, The new standard bearer of Brutus and Cassius' cause was raiding Rome's food shipments. Sextus had control of the Republican Navy and was in league with Brutus and Cassius, but after the defeat of Brutus and Cassius, Sextus now led the charge against the Triumvirate. Sextus' efforts led to skyrocketing prices for the Roman people and eventually famine. Riots ravaged Rome. They were hungry and saw an easy way to end the hunger, make peace with Sextus. However, Octavian refused to make peace with him, which infuriated the hungry Roman people, until eventually he had to give in. So Octavian and Antony met Sextus for peace talks. Sextus' demands were that the proscribed be forgiven, and their properties restored to them, and those who had helped in Julius Caesar's assassination be given safe safe exile. With famine looming over their shoulders, Octavian and Antony agreed to the terms, and put Sextus in charge of Sicily and Sidonia. What followed was a series of the most uncomfortable dinner parties of all time. All three strongly disliked each other, but the circumstances required them to work together. Appian wrote that they all secretly wore daggers under their tunics, just in case something went down. But the parties went on without a hitch, and the peace agreement went through. When the Roman people learned of the agreement, they rejoiced. Appian writes of the mood of the Roman people Thorwen people, after surviving years of watching their sons kill each other and enduring a severe famine, rejoiced at the sight of peace. Once again, Thorwen people would not have much time to rejoice as Octavian declared that Sextus was up to his usual tricks, and war broke out between the two great Romans. Octavian was excited at the chance to finally earn some military prowess after being left in Antony's shadow in the Battle of Philippi. So Octavian set out to sea with his navy. However, his first engagement with Sextus would be disastrous. During the engagement, Octavian's ships were bruised and battered in the fighting. Octavian had to flee to land with a few loyal men. When he awoke the next morning, he witnessed what must have been a miserable sight. Appian describes the scene. Quote, the next morning, when Octavian looked out upon the water, he beheld some of his ships burning, others partly burned, others still burning, and others broken in pieces. And the sea was filled with sails, rudders, and tackle. While of the ships that were saved, the greater part were damaged. End quote. Octavian's navy was in a sorry state, but Octavian didn't let the sight of his battered navy discourage him. Immediately he got to work repairing his fleet, until suddenly a tremendous southern wind battered his ships into the piercing rocks. Appian continues to write of the devastation. Quote, As the wind grew more violent, everything was thrown into confusion. The ships collided, broke their anchors, and were thrown quivering on the shore or against one another. Cries of alarm and groans of pain were mingled together, and exhortations that fell upon deaf ears. Orders could not be heard, and there was no distinction between pilot and common sailor. Knowledge and authority being alike unavailing. The same destruction awaited those in the ships and those who fell overboard, the latter being crushed by wind, waves, and floating timber. The sea was full of sails, spars, and men, living and dead. Those who sought escape by swimming to land were dashed against the rocks by the surf. Quote. The Herculean wind propelled Octavian's situation from bad to abominable. Slowly... But surely, this gale would hurl his ships and men into the wretched rocks. Eventually, the sea was scattered with bits of Octavian's fleet. The situation looked as if it could not get any worse. But as the sun disappeared from the horizon, so did Octavian's hope for an end to the madness. Appian writes of what happened as the sun set. Quote, As night came on, the wind increased in fury, so that they had no longer perished in the light, but in the darkness. Groans were heard throughout the entire night, and cries of men running along the shore, and calling their friends and relatives upon the sea by name, and mourning for them as lost when they could hear no responses. And among the cries of others lifting their heads above the waves, and beseeching aid from those on shore, nothing could be done on either land or water. Not only was the sea inexorable to those engulfed in it, as well as those to those in the ships, but the danger was almost as great on land as at sea, lest the surf should dash them against the rocks. So distressed they were by this unexampled tempest, that those who were nearest to the land feared the land, yet could not get sufficient offing to avoid collision with each other. For the narrowness of the place and its naturally difficult outlet, together with the force of the waves, the rotary motion of the wind caused by the surrounding mountains, and the whirlpool of the deep holding everything in its grasp, allowing neither tearing nor escape, the darkness of that very black night added their distress. And so they perished, no longer seeing each other, some uttering confusing cries, others yielding in silence accepting their doom, some even hastening it, believing that they were irretrievably doomed. End quote. Things, somehow, had gotten worse for Octavian. The night brought more death and destruction than had happened during the day. His ships were trapped in a narrow strait. Worst of all, Octavian was powerless to stop the decimation of his fleet. He had to sit And watch as his fleet suffered when the sun finally rose the next day the gale had subsided half of octavian's fleet was gone and sextus had to barely lift a finger the seemingly indomitable octavian had suffered a major failure he scurried back to rome to try to downplay the failure and figure out his next move how octavian handled this defeat shows another one of his strongest leadership qualities, the ability to enable others. Realizing he could not win against Sextus with his own military merits, he had to call upon his childhood friend Agrippa and empower him to run Octavian's fleet. Agrippa has been neglected on this podcast a little too long. Agrippa was the military and engineering genius to Octavian's political genius. Their partnership was one of the most beneficial in history. Whenever Octavian needed serious military help, he'd call on Agrippa and give him the freedom to do what Agrippa did best. In fact, most of Octavian's military achievements in his life were due to Agrippa's genius. But this encounter is where Agrippa really starts to shine. Octavian had to swallow his pride and realize military matters weren't his strongest suit. With this in mind, he gave Agrippa free reign to do what he did best, engineer and lead a military force. There are two big issues facing Octavian that Agrippa solved in one genius move. The first one, Octavian needed more ships, but it was impossible to build ships at any of the ports since Sextus ruled the seas. The second issue, Agrippa had little to no experience at the helm of a navy, but Agrippa being the engineering genius that he was, designed one of the wonders of the world at the time. Agrippa's idea was hatched south of Rome, where Naples is today. The idea was to dig a canal from Lake Averno to Lake Lucrino, then dig another canal from Lucrino to the Mediterranean. What made his idea genius was that Lake Averno was invisible from the sea. So Sextus would not know about Octavian's efforts to rebuild the navy. In addition to the advantage of secrecy, the lakes provided an essential training ground for Agrippa and his new fleet. And in a final stroke of genius, Agrippa invented the Harpax. The Harpax was a machine that acted like a grappling hook. It would launch and heave ships together so the boarding could begin. So in one quick swoop, Both of Octavian's problems were solved, because he empowered Agrippa to do what he did best. So after a year of preparation, the time had come to deal with Sextus once and for all. The attack would consist of three parts. Octavian would bring his ships and legions onto Sicily. At the same time, Lepidus would take his twelve legions from Africa to Sicily. Finally, another force would sail to Sicily's west coast. On paper, it seemed solid. Sextus would be slowly strangled by Octavian's noose. However, the seas had another plan. While Lepidus easily landed on Sicily without too many issues, Octavian's fleet was once again hit by a strong wind. Not as bad as the last time, but it still did enough damage. Octavian was in despair, and shouted to the gods. I will win this war, even if neptune does not wish me to." End quote. Octavian was getting frustrated with his bad luck. Once the winds had subsided, him and Agrippa came up with a new plan. Agrippa would sail first to Sicily to try to engage Sextus. Once Sextus was engaged, Octavian would sail over with his legions. Finally, the weather was good. Agrippa was able to engage most of Sextus's fleet sent a message to Octavian claiming that Sextus was engaged. But Sextus knew something was afoot. He sailed near to where he thought Octavian was going to try to sneak onto Sicily and waited. Octavian, then thinking that Sextus was occupied, sailed confidently towards Sicily. But as Octavian made it ashore, suddenly Sextus's fleet raced into view. In addition, his cavalry charged into sight. Octavian's legions were caught unprepared. Luckily, Sextus did not press the issue too much, so Octavian's forces had time to set up their defenses during the night. They were safe. For now. Octavian's ships needed to be sailed back to safety, though. On their way back to Italy, the ships would be harassed by Sextus. So once Octavian had saved his ships, he had a hard choice to make. Go to Italy to drum up help, or go to his men on Sicily. He chose to go to Italy. This decision led to Octavian to go through one of the scariest nights of his life. He set off from his fleet in a small boat towards Italy. But Sexus's men chased him, and once Octavian thought he was in the clear, he went ashore with his armor bearer. He saw some Roman ships and greeted them enthusiastically, but to his horror, they were Sexus's ships. Octavian fled to the mountains, evading the men, and finally, once he thought he was safe in the mountains, he would also try to be killed by a slave whose master's father had been killed by Octavian, but Octavian escaped. Finally, he made it back to his legions. He was mentally and physically exhausted, but Octavian's luck would finally turn around. In a matter of days, Agrippa captured some ports in northern Sicily, which made it easy for Octavian to transfer the rest of his legions. In addition, the men that Octavian left on Sicily were able to march to those northern ports. Octavian was in control of Sicily, but Sextus still ruled the seas. Sextus realized he could not beat Octavian on the land, so he forced a final encounter on the seas. So Agrippa, with the use of his harpax, would confront Sextus once and for all. In the battle that followed, Sextus was crushed. While the war was over, the drama was not. Lepidus started claiming that he was master of Sicily and that he had won the war. Octavian was infuriated. It looked as if another war would break out between Lepidus and Octavian. But Lepidus's soldiers, tired from war, switched to Octavian's side. Lepidus was kicked out of the Triumvirate, but Octavian gave him his life. So finally, through the genius of Agrippa, Octavian had ended the famine in another civil war. In addition, with Lepidus out of the Triumvirate, it was Octavian and Antony who now split the empire in two. Octavian in the west and Antony in the east. For a while, things were back to normal. Antony was busy campaigning in the east against Parthia, while Octavian was campaigning in Illyricum to improve his military stature, or as some speculators put it, was getting his army trained for the eventual clash with Antony. However, this clash with Antony would need more than just Octavian and Agrippa's military might, it needed a complex propaganda machine. To run this propaganda machine, Octavian needed the genius of his friend Macenus, who was essentially Octavian's minister of culture. And like Agrippa, Macenus has been undeservedly neglected so far. For starters, he helped negotiate the original triumvirate, and he would also help negotiate the next renewal of the triumvirate. And while Octavian was fighting Sextus, Macenus was administratively in charge of Rome Octavian's absence. And finally, he had been funding two of Rome's best poets, Virgil and Horace, and without censoring them, ensured they stay on an Octavian-positive message. Without Macinus, it's hard to imagine how far Octavian would have gotten. But Octavian's biggest challenge at that moment was public perception. The Romans had no interest in fighting another civil war. Octavian needed to change the narrative from Octavian versus Antony to Octavian versus Cleopatra, Antony's new wife, the queen of Egypt. He needed the Roman people to see Cleopatra as a threat. So Octavian empowered his friend Macinus. And Macinus, like a masterful artist, needed to paint a certain image in the mind of the Romans. First, he needed to paint a picture of Octavian as a good old-fashioned Roman, a champion of Republican values while Antony needed to be painted as a good old Roman who had been corrupted by the evil witch of the east, Cleopatra. In order to paint Octavian as a good old Roman, he had Horace and Virgil start publishing work that viewed Octavian in this light. For example, Virgil in his book The Aeneid told the heroic story of Romulus and the founding of Rome, which was particularly helpful because Octavian's family boasted of being descended from Romulus. So the Roman people saw Octavian as a descendant of the original Roman. As far as painting Antony as corrupted by Cleopatra, well, Antony did not make that very hard for Messenus and Octavian. For starters, Antony did three very un-Roman things. He married Cleopatra, a foreigner. He gave Roman holdings to her children. And then he held a triumph outside of Rome. To start, it was completely against Roman culture to marry a foreigner, and to make matters worse, Antony had been married to Octavia, who was seen as a good Roman mother, and also sister to Octavian. To add on to the flames, Antony would give his adopted children positions in the east, which infuriated the Roman people even more. And finally, Antony would hold a triumph outside of Rome, in Alexandria, a slap in the face to every Roman since all triumphs happened in Rome. But if these actions were just Antony adding wood to the fire, he was about to throw gasoline on it. Two defectors from Antony's side told Octavian disturbing details about what Antony had put in his will. Dio writes of Octavian's reaction to these scandalous details. Quote, Thereupon Caesar became still more violently enraged, and did not shrink from searching for the document, seizing it, and then carrying it down to the Senate, and later into the Assembly, and reading it. For the clauses contained in it were of such nature that this most lawless procedure on Caesar's part brought upon him no reproach from the citizens. For Antony had borne witness to Caesarion, Julius Caesar's allegedly bastard son, that he was truly sprung from Caesar. Had given some enormous presents to his children by the Egyptian queen who were being reared by him, and had ordered that his body be buried in Alexandria by her side. End quote. This infuriated the Romans. Trying to claim that Cleopatra's son had Julius' blood was an insult. In addition, Antony wishing to be buried in Alexandria showed the Roman people that he had no more interest in Rome. Dio continues to write of what the Roman people thought of the will. Quote, this caused the Romans in their indignation to believe that the other reports in circulation were also true, to the effect that if Antony should prevail, he would bestow their city upon Cleopatra and transfer the seat of power to Egypt. End quote. The outrage led to Antony being stripped of his upcoming consulship and his authority to lead an army. Macinus and Octavian's propaganda machine had done its work. The drums of war were pounding, not against a fellow Roman, but against the evil Eastern witch. With Macinus' job as minister of culture complete, it was up to Octavian to finish the fight. Once again, Octavian powered his friend Agrippa. Agrippa was placed in charge of the naval force, probably because as we have seen before, naval encounters weren't Octavian's strong suit. Together, they would meet Antony near Actium in Greece. The battle was extremely anticlimactic. What was expected to be the great clash between the descendant of Romulus, the champion of Rome, versus the wicked witch of the east, petered out into Antony and Cleopatra, fleeing back to Egypt. For Octavian and Agrippa had geniusly bottled up Antony and the port of Actium, and with no other promising prospects in sight, Antony decided to break Agrippa's blockade and regroup in Egypt. In breaking the blockade, Antony would lose most of his forces, but Antony and Cleopatra made it safely back to Egypt. However, they were not much safer in Egypt. Once Octavian had begun his attack, Antony and Cleopatra's forces surrendered without a fight. Antony would commit a painful suicide, and Cleopatra would use the only card she had left, charm. But Octavian did not see Cleopatra's beauty. Instead, he saw an extraordinary prize for his triumph. Cleopatra, though, would rob Octavian of his prize when she committed suicide. Finally, the civil wars were over. The Roman Republic was over. Octavian returned to Rome a hero with the help of his friend Agrippa, Octavian had defeated Sextus and Antony. In addition, with Maecenas's propaganda machine, he helped turn the essential public opinion in Octavian's favor. Octavian was one of the most powerful men in the world, but he did not get there alone. He would undergo one final name change. Octavian was given the name Augustus, revered one. Over the remainder of his life, Octavian would introduce policies that would ensure there would be no more civil wars for some time. In addition, he would work to forge Rome into a society that would last for another 500 years. However, this transformation would have not been possible if Octavian had not empowered his colleagues, Agrippa and Macinus, to do what they did best. Once again, the main lesson to learn here is that great things can't be accomplished alone. Not even the great Augustus could succeed without help from others. Octavian was nearly unstoppable because he used the talents of those around him. When Octavian suffered a humiliating defeat against Sextus, he called upon the military and engineering talent of Agrippa. When needing help painting a picture in the minds of the Romans, he called upon the master of culture and arts, Messinus. Empowering those around him rounded out Octavian to be an unstoppable force, and led to Octavian becoming the great Augustus Caesar, and changed the course of history forever.